0: Welcome to the Classic Speeches podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, bringing you treasured talks from seventy years of BYU devotionals. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting speeches.byu.edu/podcasts.
1: I'm grateful to be with you tonight, and I appreciate what it means to have to, for you to have decided to spend your time with me. I watched you take your seats and wait. I'd like to talk with you tonight about those two things, about time and about waiting. I was riding in a car with a wise man a few years ago. We talked about some tragedies in lives of people we knew. Some had waited too long, missing the chance to act, and some had waited not long enough. He said quietly after we had talked for a while, more to himself than to me, timing is everything. Ecclesiastes said it with elegance and with a metaphor that goes beyond poetry to frame our problem. To everything, there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up that which is planted, and then later, a time to get, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away. Waiting for a harvest takes more judgment in life than it does in gardening. In your garden, you can tell if the seed sprouts, and even an amateur like me can tell when the corn or the carrots are ready. But I remember a story told to me long ago, far from here, by a sad voice. I remember it not because it was unique, but because I have heard the same story told again and again about waiting or failing to wait. The details vary, but not the feeling of the drama. She said it happened on a summer Saturday afternoon. She was tired tired of being single, tired of trying to be a faithful Latter-day Saint, tired not so much of being kind and virtuous, as tired of nothing good seeming to come of it. She'd not had a date in months. She saw no prospect of even becoming friends with, let alone marrying, a man who shared her faith and ideals. In frustration, she found herself deciding something. She decided that afternoon, consciously, that years of good works and restraint had produced too little and promised no more. She said to herself almost aloud, oh, what's the use? The phone rang. It was a man's voice, a man she knew. He lived in the same apartment building He'd asked her out before. She'd refused because she was sure he'd expect her to compromise standards she'd preserved at great effort. But almost as if directed by a scriptwriter, he called at that instant. She didn't say yes. She said, I'll think about it. She thought about it. He called again. And finally, she repeated to herself, Oh, what's the use? She went, she found she had been right about his intentions, and in a choice about time and about waiting, or not waiting, her life changed. So she will never know what might have been ahead on the path she decided wasn't worth the price. She knew quickly the other one was uphill and a hard climb. All of us make decisions every day, almost every hour, about whether it's worth it to wait. The hardest ones are where the waiting includes working. Does it make sense to keep working, to keep sacrificing, when nothing seems to be coming from the effort? There's a young man in the mission field who's made that choice in the last month. I heard this story, but there must have been thousands of such choices made last month. His companion, at least the way he describes him, would have made Job's critical friends seem like the three Nephites. (laughs) I can't, in a setting as sacred as this, tell you what his roommate was really like. But that companion, just living and working with him, required more contribution than the young missionary had dreamed he was going to have to make. The mission president authorized them to stay in their apartment, because wind brought the effective temperature to 80 degrees below zero. So the young man had to decide. Shall we go out? We've been tracting, and it's produced nothing. For what it would cost us, what would we get? We haven't got a contact, so we'd be just hitting doors. Well, he went. That's an odd investment decision, but he went. What he got was to meet one man behind one of a hundred doors. In his letter about the man's baptism, he said, I've never been more happy in my life. Now, you know, we're talking about an application of the law of the harvest. Common sense tells you there is such a law, and so did the Savior, and so have the prophets. Remember how Paul said it, be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall, shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Tonight we're talking just about sowing to the Spirit. And we're talking about that long list of requirements and commandments you already know are required along the way to eternal life. Tonight we're going to try to just understand one universal challenge, how to keep waiting and working when the harvest seems delayed. Now, the most important fact to note is that crops, even the spiritual ones, are not all of one kind. There are early maturing varieties and late varieties. Maybe you've noticed in seed catalogs that one corn can be harvested unless, sometimes nearly half the time it takes for another to be ready. You may not pay attention to that, but I do, because I've lived in Rexburg, Idaho. It freezes just before the Fourth of July and just after. Efforts, spiritual or practical, don't all bear fruit in the same length of time. You know that, but you may not have noticed something about your behavior that wouldn't make sense unless most of your experience is with early crops. Those are the ones where effort produces fast results. What happens after the early harvest? Would you expect an intelligent person to keep cultivating a field that had already produced its crop and been cleared? No, at least not in the hope of getting any more harvest. Now, one trouble with most of our struggles is that you can't see the seeds and you can't see the crops clearly and you may not know much about the maturation time. So you have to make this decision frequently. Has this effort yielded about all it's going to, or shall I keep working and waiting? Without even watching you in the library or in your rooms, I can guess you've had most of your experience with early crops. Think of the last set of math problems you worked. For some of you, that may be very difficult, but think about it. Think of the last paper you submitted. How many times did you rework the problems? Did you try another attack on the problem after you found that your answer agreed with the one in the back of the book? <laughs> did you work extra problems beyond those assigned? How many drafts did you write of that last paper? Two, three, 10? The answers will vary, but not much. (laughs) For most of you, the best bet is that you stopped early. Why? Because you understand something called the law of diminishing returns. (laughs) Most of you use it when you cut a lawn. You cut it in one direction, then you may cut it in the other to get it smoother. But not many of you would cut it a third time. Why? Because you'd say it isn't worth it. I've gotten about all the smoothness I'm going to get. And more than that, cutting it the third time will take nearly as much time as it did the first. Now, at the risk of terrifying you all, I will now draw a graph in the very air before you. This is for those few economic students who have stayed with it. We will. Pretend we have the x- and the y-axis right here before us. Now, you remember, the one goes up and the one goes across. Uh, (laughs) I'll move it for all to see. You have it? Now, if we uh, plot going up this way, the results of our effort, and if we plot going out this way the length of time we've been applying the effort, and we plot the law of diminishing returns, The curve will start up somewhere here and it'll go down over time. Got it? Got it. That's the law of diminishing returns. That makes good sense for cutting lawns, and it makes good sense for many other things. In fact, it makes sense for so many that I think you may find it easy to say in your mind, I pity some of those people who just seem like losers, always working and always waiting. Something going on in the world around you encourages, almost demands that attitude. Husbands, wives, parents, and even children are familiar with deciding, shall I keep giving when I'm getting so little? Families may be the best place to find out how the world feels about working and waiting for late crops. Families require some of the toughest investment decisions of all. Statistics show clearly which way the decisions are going in this country. In 1945, half of the people in America thought four or more children was the ideal number for a family to have. By 1980, only 16% thought so. From 1960 to 1977, it's estimated that the number of unmarried people living together doubled from about half a million to a million—that's a million people who are unwilling even to start the investment process in a family. Most of you know what investments and patience are required to maintain virtue, serve an effective mission, or build an eternal family, but perhaps many of you haven't given enough attention to how much the world is moving away from the idea of delaying gratification long enough to do those things. Here's some grim arithmetic to let you see it. An economist named Henry Kaufman has added up the wealth in America and subtracted all the debt. In 1964, that showed us about $400 million in the hole. By 1980, the hole had increased, or, or since a hole, it's a hole, I should say it's sunk uh, to three, trillion dollars. Even if his figures overstate the problem, they make the direction we're choosing clear. That tells you something about how much we're demanding to have our future now. One farmer heard those numbers and said, why? We've been eating our seed corn. You shouldn't really be surprised to have arrived in an I-want-it-now generation. A prophet, Peter, saw it long ago. He said, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last day, scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Now you are believers, not scoffers, yet the scoffers can be helpful because they encourage you to get an answer to this question. What am I willing to keep giving heart and soul for when neither I nor the scoffers may see returns for a long, long time? And when we decide, and we will decide together, there are potential reward rewards worth that commitment. You'll want answers to another question. How can I keep myself working and waiting if the scoffers are loud and the delay is long. There are spiritual crops that require months, years, and sometimes a lifetime of cultivation before the harvest. Among them are spiritual rewards. You want most. That shouldn't surprise you. Common sense tells you that what matters most won't come easily, but there is another reason suggested in the scriptures. Remember this from the Book of Mormon. And now I, Moroni, would speak somewhat concerning these things. I would show unto the world that faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. Wherefore, dispute not because ye see not, for ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. And from the Doctrine and Covenants, ye cannot behold with your natural eyes for the present time the design of your God Concerning those things which shall come hereafter, and the glory which shall follow after much tribulation. For after much tribulation come the blessings. Wherefore the day cometh that ye shall be crowned with much glory. The hour is not yet, but is nigh at hand. If you wanted to give this idea a name, you could call it the Law of Increasing Returns. The simple fact is that there is a God who wants us to have faith in Him. He knows that to strengthen faith we must use it, and so He gives us the chance to use it by letting some of the spiritual rewards you want most be delayed. Instead of first effort yielding returns with a steady decline afterwards, it's the reverse. First efforts—and even second efforts—seem to yield little. And then the rewards begin, perhaps much later, to grow and grow. Now, just back to the chart for just a moment. Last time. But you'll never remember without a visual aid. (laughs) I used to teach the teacher development course, I know. (laughs) Back to the chart. And remember how we were before, the law of diminishing returns. Output here, length of time you've been hitting it and waiting this way. Remember, it went down. Now remember which way we'll go start low, may go a long, long time, stay low, and then after, faith has been tried. It starts up. Most of us need encouragement to work and wait for rewards, but not everybody. I knew one man who lived his life pretty much as if everything he did was working on a late crop. He was my father. He died this Christmas after a life filled with getting awards from the National Medal of Science in this country to the Wolf Prize in Israel. But if you'd watched him in private, or if you'd watched him in private, you would have seen some unusual behavior. I remember him wrestling my Aunt Rose once. <laughs> she was visiting us in New Jersey, and we'd driven to the ice cream school, store. You'll know how old I am when I say a cone cost a dime. Aunt Rose tried to pay for our cones. Dad wrestled her for it. I remember being afraid he'd break her arm. He was determined he'd give, not receive. And she was going to receive a broken arm if that's what it took. They laughed, but Dad won. He won that fight all his life giving more than he got. He taught every term in his years at the University of Utah, including summers. There was no extra pay. It wasn't even required as part of the job. I remember his trading a first class ticket for tourist and sending the difference to the company that had provided the ticket. His life was to give first class, but always take tourist. Why? I've got an idea. He believed in the law of increasing returns. Give more than you take. Invest in the future. Cast your bread upon the waters. You might think he was extreme. He probably was. My guess is that he left more of everything of this world's goods than he consumed in a lifetime, despite all the awards heaped on him. I don't recommend that to you, partly because it might drive your spouse slightly bonkers. But there is a scripture about behavior like that. It's in Matthew, the sixth chapter, verse one through four. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them, otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, They have their reward, but when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret. And thy Father, which seeth in secret, himself shall reward thee openly. Now, I wouldn't suggest Dad fought to buy the ice cream cone because he wanted a reward in heaven. He just had a general bias towards putting in hard work up front and letting the rewards take a long time to come even forever. Even in the confusion of the last night I spent with him, he gave me some advice. I was helping him walk. I'm not even sure he knew I was there, but very clearly, almost with a booming voice, he said, well, let's just do your homework tonight and we'll see how the exam goes in the morning. (laughs) He's getting the grade now. And he spent a life doing as much homework as he could. Most most of us could move profitably toward a little more homework and leaving the grades for tomorrow. My guess is that all of you want to be better at working and waiting. Let me give you some advice about how to do it. It all follows from what we've said about the law of increasing returns, about planting and tending late crops. But it's not just theory. I got these hints from watching people who are the best I've seen at working and waiting on late crops. As the ads say, this product has been proven in clinical tests. All these hints have to do with where you focus your eyes. Two are things you ought to notice about the present while you're working and waiting and not getting much yet in return. And the last two are ways to look at the glorious future you're working and waiting for. First, keep your eyes open for humor in the present. The people I know who are good for the long haul all seem to smile easily. It's not hard for me to understand, for instance, that the prophet Joseph Smith, who marched triumphantly through trouble, would describe himself as having a cheerful disposition. You can't just get yourself a cheerful disposition, but you could keep your eyes open for something to smile at. It's not hard. That's because the best humor springs from seeing the incongruity in your own predicament. And who's got more predicament than someone who's giving lots with small results? And who's more apt to laugh easily, laugh easily at themselves than someone who has ultimate faith that the predicament will end? So look for the chance to smile. As the introduction said, I've had some experience in the chainsaw business. One joke keeps reappearing with new variations. The father of all the jokes goes something like this. A customer bought his first chainsaw. He was told how many trees he'd be able to cut an hour. He came back to the dealer complaining. He said, I can't cut a tenth that many trees. Saul saw was checked out and found perfect. He's reassured then by the dealer that practice and time will solve his problem. He keeps coming back as many times as you want to extend the story to make it funny. <laughs> Finally, in desperation, the dealer says, let me take you out to the forest and show you. They get there. The dealer pulls the cord. The engine roars, and the customer says, what's that? (laughs) Think about it. Now, you laugh slowly or not at all. But try that story on a woodcutter. He pictures quickly that poor man sawing on a tree with a chainsaw, with the motor not running. You've got to know how heavy a chainsaw is, and it probably would have helped to have cut down a tree. If you had, you'd roar. Why? Because it's funny. (laughs) It's funny to think of yourself flailing away. They even have an expression for it when they're trying to persuade you of something and failing. Well, I'm swinging the axe, but no chips are flying. Most returned missionaries and most married couples here tonight have swung the ax and seen no chips fly. You could top those of you who've been there any funny story I try to tell. And if I were in a small group, you'd try. (laughs) That's not because we are humorous. It's not because missions or marriage or dedicated service are not serious. They are very serious. But the incongruities of giving more than you seem to get guarantee the chance to smile at yourself. I hope you will. All it will take is to keep your eyes open, and I think it is one of the keys to endurance. The second place to focus your eyes is on the blessings you are getting now while you wait. When you are trying hard to give, Knowing the rewards will be delayed, it is terribly easy to overlook other blessings. Not all blessings are delayed. The early harvest is all around you. King Benjamin suggested you start by noticing that you are breathing. He also said, as you likely remember, and secondly, he doth require that you should do as he hath commanded you, for which, if ye do, He doth immediately bless you, therefore he hath paid you. Some results may be delayed to allow you to strengthen your faith, but other blessings come immediately, and King Benjamin, at least, values those so highly compared to what we give that he says, Mark your whole bill paid in full. I know that's hard to do if you are struggling under a heavy load. It's easy to see your load and to pine for the delayed rewards. But King Benjamin teaches us that we're already abundantly paid, both with free gifts, such as life, for which we gave nothing, and with other blessings which have followed immediately upon our faithful service. Just that focus of the eyes might save your marriage someday. I'll guarantee you one thing. You won't contract a great marriage. You'll build one. Now that's not saying that some contracts to build aren't a lot better than others, but it will take effort and time, maybe a lot of time, and millions of men and women every year, or maybe every hour, must mutter, what am I getting out of this? If it weren't for the children, hold it right there, the children. The other day, Elizabeth, age two, saw the picture of her father in the paper. She said, that's Dad. He wants to change with me. That doesn't mean much to you. In fact, it might even confuse you, because you might not know that she means to help her father change, not get changed herself. Oh, but it means something to me, because I'm the guy who sits on the floor when she says, you sit here. I'll tell you something. All she has to do is hand me those shoe trees one time, and then say, let me kiss you head, (laughs) which, as you can see, is easy to hit. (laughs) And you can mark anything owed me on the marriage account paid in full. I recognize that's easy for a father to say. Mothers invest so much more in children that a kiss from a little girl still leaves a lot for the future. Men and women. Working outside the home deal mostly with early crops and with the law of diminishing returns. In the home, they spend far more on late crops and the law of increasing returns. It's important to remember that. It could help a woman understand why arguments for a career and little time spent rearing children are so tempting. And it might help a man understand why a child trampling on the teachings of the home may tear at his wife even more than at him. His paycheck comes often. Hers may come a few times in her life. And now, perhaps, because of the choice of a child, one check may not come at all. But for men and women, obsessed as they should be, with eternal results that take so long, it helps to see the blessings already in hand. The prettiest flowers I've ever seen were among rocks near the tops of mountains. That must have been partly because I worked hard to get there and I was working for something else. And Then suddenly there they were. By forcing yourself to look at them, at the blessings around you, it will be easy to do what King Benjamin suggested. Oh, you ought to thank your Heavenly King. Among the reasons we ought to be thankful is that it will improve our vision. And with an eye on today's blessings, you'll have more staying power for the distant goal. Now let me suggest how to keep your eye on the distant goal. What will a successful mission look like? How can I picture a great message? That's hard to see before you get there. And it's hard to persevere without some picture. I've never forgotten the sacrament talk of an Englishman who had spent four years in a Japanese prison camp. Two missionaries had found him and baptized him just before the capture of Singapore. He lost all of his possessions save a photograph of the two missionaries, and that he kept hidden from his captors. He survived, he said, largely by finding moments, sometimes hidden under a blanket, when he would look at the picture and imagine himself talking to the elders again. So vivid is that evening sacrament, meaning to me that I remember it now, 35 years later. I remember that he finished his testimony and then sang the holy city. Now, you rarely can have a photograph of that future for which you now sacrifice. But you can get pictures. Years ago, near the time of that sacrament meeting, it occurred to me that I would sometime perhaps have a family. I even joked about the children, calling them the redheads. My mother's hair had been red when she was young. I certainly didn't think the idea of redheads was inspiration, just an idea. But more than once. That picture was enough to make me work and wait. If all my four sons were here tonight, you could see two blonde heads and two red ones. In a kitchen chat one evening, one of them said to me he'd not mind exchanging red hair for beach boy Blonde. I just smiled. All dads may think their sons are handsome, but I would not exchange his red hair nor my early vision of it before spun gold. Now, it's not wise to daydream, and I'm not recommending it. If you girls dream too much about a house or a car, some poor man someday will have to get it for you. (laughs) (laughs) But I do recommend a little thought, not about things or places, but about people. All the late crops, all the assignments God will reward in the long run that I can think of, Involves serving someone else. For example, now and then I try to think of my children as parents, perhaps older than I am now, perhaps at the end of life. I learned something about the end of life from watching my father at the end of his. He talked a lot about his father. His father was kind. His father believed in him. His father liked to be with him so much that he got him a horse to ride the range with. So he could be with his dad before my dad could even walk. That's what he talked about at the end when his priorities got very clear. Perhaps much of what he did in science and in serving God was possible because of what his father did. Just that little vision of the future makes me eager when the two younger boys ask, Dad, can we go to the Deseret Gym tonight? And the older ones say, Let's hit a few tennis balls. It's not quite the same as riding with your son on the Piedras Verdes the way Grandpa did, but I hope it has just half the results. I suppose those pictures are really visions, and you'd have to pray for them or take them as gifts. But at least watch for them. You may catch glimmers. I have had a few, and they help. Now, Finally, it is important to look carefully at those delayed blessings to notice that there are of at least two kinds, some you can see and touch and maybe even spend. You remember them. For keeping the Sabbath day long enough, the promise is, Verily I say, that inasmuch as ye do this, the fullness of the earth is yours, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air, and that which climbeth upon the trees and walketh upon the earth. There are many promises of tangible things, and you and I know of instances where faithful performance seems not yet to have produced the blessings. But for all sacred performances in serving God, there is another promised blessing. You couldn't touch it or spend it, and you can only see it with special vision. But I commend developing the skill to see it. A man named Helaman had it. He was struggling under great uncertainty about what was ahead. He was working and waiting. Here is what he said happened. Yea, and it came to pass that the Lord our God did visit us with assurances that He would deliver us, yea, inasmuch insomuch that he did speak peace to our souls and did grant unto us great faith and did cause us that we should hope for our deliverance in him." If you learn how to see it, you can know that many people have had that peace spoken to their souls. There are men and women undergoing trials and tests of faith that might lead you to say, Their faith will break. They can't take it, but it doesn't break, and they do take it. And if you will look carefully, you will realize that peace has been spoken to their souls and faith in deliverance increased. If you notice that, it will make it more likely that you can feel that peace. I bear you my testimony that you can. I pray that you won't let the world nudge you towards spending your futures now. There are some things you should work for and expect results now, but along with getting early harvests, I hope you'll work and wait for the late ones. That will take seeing the law of increasing returns as an opportunity, not just a test. Delayed blessings will build your faith in God to work and wait for Him. The scriptures aren't demeaning you when they command, wait upon the Lord. That means both service and patience, and that will build your faith. It may help you to watch both for the chance to smile and for the blessings around you on the way. And it may help to picture both the future of the people whom you serve for God and his promise to you of peace in this life. I bear you my testimony that there is a God that the chance to serve and be blessed by him is vastly multiplied by the restoration of the gospel and that faith is exercised, faith exercised is strengthened and finally rewarded. And I bear you my testimony that to his faithful servants, God speaks peace to the soul, builds their faith, and gives them hope for rewards glorious enough to wait for. I bear you that testimony and pray God's blessings upon you in your working and your waiting. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
0: You've been listening to the Classic Speeches Podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including recent speeches, updated weekly with new talks given on BYU campus, as well as other speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information.